0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I have a question for you. When was the last time you checked, I agree, and actually read the terms and conditions on one of those pop-ups for an app you just downloaded or online service you signed up for? Yeah, I can't remember either. And that's just the tip of the proverbial iceberg when it comes to sharing our digital data and privacy with online third parties. The breadth and depth of information about each of us that is in the digital space, the way this data is used by companies without our knowledge, and problems with data protection and breaches all combine to create a serious challenge to protecting privacy. My guest in the studio today is a leading expert on consumer data privacy and is here today to discuss his new report on the issue. Cameron Carey is the Anne R. and Andrew H. Tisch Distinguished Visiting Fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation, part of Governance Studies at Brookings, as well as a visiting scholar at the MIT Media Lab. He served as acting secretary and also general counsel of the U.S. Department of Commerce. The report, now published on our website, is titled Why Protecting Privacy is a Losing Game Today and How to Change the Game. Also on today's show, a new Metrolin segment with Rubenstein fellow Jenny Schutz talking about housing policy in the U.S., including affordability in different parts of the nation. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at policypodcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Cam, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria.
1: Thanks, Fred. It's good to be here.
0: So let's open with a general description of how personal data is generated, how it flows all around us, without us even being aware of it. I'll just say, when I read this report, I got a little bit scared about my own digital footprint out there. So you might address
1: what people think about when they consider privacy versus what is really happening. Sure. Well, you need to be concerned. I mean, when we check those boxes, we have some general idea about how the data is being used. But we're really trusting the company that's collecting our data. And there are a lot of ways the data gets collected that we don't know about. You know, people turn location services on, off on their phones – but it can be collected uh, by apps that you don't know are collecting it sometimes uh, or collected in ways, Wi-Fi, beacons in stores, and other things that provide location information. And now, of course, we're expanding into the world of autonomous vehicles, of connected streets, the Internet of everything. So data is going to be collected all around us and in ways that we have no control over.
0: You talk in the paper about the sheer volume, the explosion of the amount of digital information. You put it in terms of, I can hardly say this number, quintillions of bytes of data every day and doubling of computing processing power every 18 to 24 months. It's astonishing. How much data is out there?
1: Um, It is astonishing because of all those devices, all the numbers of people that have smartphones now, all the bandwidth. uh, We are going through a data big bang. And we are really just at the beginning. So this problem is growing. I've certainly seen it grow in the time that I've been involved most of the time that I was in the federal government, I was the senior official in the Obama administration focusing on privacy and dealing with the rest of the world on these issues. When I left in 2013 after Snowden, it was the president of the United States who was the senior official dealing with that, supported by a lot of the cabinet and his senior staff. That's just one reflection of how these issues have exploded in recent years. And that explosion didn't go any way, Fred.
0: You were a uh, lead developer of the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights in the Obama administration, as I understand it. And I oh, definitely I've, want to get back to that. Sure. Yeah, uh, I would love to talk about that. Let's go through your paper real quick that's on the Brookings website. You call protecting privacy a losing game today. Why is it a losing game today? hmm
1: The title comes from Lucille Ball. You know, there's that classic episode where Lucy is on an assembly line. She's wrapping candies. And it keeps going faster and faster. And she's uh, getting further and further behind. Finally, she turns to her sidekick, Ethel, and she says, I think we're playing a losing game. And that's where I see – privacy today, both from an individual standpoint and from the standpoint of our laws and policies because the data and the technology are moving faster and faster and our capacity as individuals to keep up through tools like those privacy policies and consent boxes or just trying to manage controls is getting further and further behind in that information overload and our laws and our policies can't keep up. Well, I know
0: some people might say, well, if you don't want your private data out there, then, you know, don't put it out there. You can take control over your your own data. But as you said, I mean, our capacity as individuals is limited. I mean, can you kind of address that kind of individual responsibility versus maybe what the legal structures and regulatory structures have to do in this area?
1: Sure. Look, I think there's some role for individual responsibility here and people need to be digitally literate and understand how the technology works. But still trying to manage all of that is impossible. I mean, look, I'm supposed to be an expert, right? I can't control all of my privacy settings and there's too much of it. There's too much that is outside our control. And right now, understanding data, understanding what you can learn from the data on our phones and other kinds of digital information that's out there is the province of computer scientists. So, you know, Google, Facebook, all the big companies have tens of thousands of engineers and data scientists working on what you can learn from data. I work with people at the MIT Media Lab who are studying that. So, you know, most of us are not Ph.D. computer scientists, data scientists. This is just beyond the capacity of ordinary people. So we do need to establish uh, some norms as to how data is handled.
0: One other important thing that I picked up from your paper is that even if we were able as individuals to know where we're giving our data, to practice better digital privacy routines in our own personal lives, it almost doesn't matter because of the way that third parties are using our data and sharing our data that we don't even know about. And you write in the paper, individual choice becomes utterly meaningless as increasingly automated data collection leaves no opportunity for any real notice, much less individual consent.
1: Well, what that's about is really in the Internet of Things. You go out on the streets, there are cameras, that's increasingly common. There are cities and parts of the world you can go to where you can't go anywhere without there being cameras. There may be a sign posted somewhere, these premises, under camera surveillance, but that's not effective consent or control. And that only increases as we get into the internet of everything. But yeah, we also have different kinds of ad tracking. We have data brokers, we have different kinds of sharing through the ecosystem. I mean, you take some of the most protected information we have that I think everybody's familiar with, health data. So HIPAA, Health Information Privacy Accountability Act, accounts for the forms you sign when you go to the doctor, is one of the strongest privacy laws out there anywhere in the world. But even so, The people who have access to that data through the health ecosystem is pretty extraordinary. So you may know you're sharing it with your medical provider and your insurer, but there's a lot of other people in the process when you map that out who have that. And that exists across every kind of data.
0: I'll call listeners' attention to a podcast episode I did with Niamh Yuragi on that very question about HIPAA and privacy data and the fact that third parties that we don't even know Mm -hmm. are involved in Mm -hmm. the uh, sharing of medical information have access to the data we thought we just gave to our doctor or our medical provider. It's a really... It's a really complicated thing. Another thing that struck me from your paper, and it's something we've talked about for a long time in our digital culture, is this concept of PII, personally identifiable Mm -hmm. information, which I take to mean my full name, my social security number, my birth date, maybe my phone number, maybe my street address, although that's usually publicly available information. But this Mm -hmm. kind of set of information that can personally identify me, you call a focus on that basket of digital information too narrow. Why is that too narrow?
1: Well, as you have more and more data out there, it becomes possible to aggregate data and correlate data in ways that allow you to pick out an individual and link up data to an individual even without all that standard personally identifiable information involved. So it's something that's been very much a focus in the privacy community for a number of years where people understand. I mean, there have been these exploits where researchers have gone out and taken what was a supposedly anonymous database and been able to identify specific people. So there's an understanding that what is anonymous can be re-identified. Our laws have not caught up with that yet. So I think we need to expand the way that we look at what is personal information.
0: You also write in this paper that the sectoral boundaries that have defined U.S. privacy protection cease to make any sense. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. We have a pretty strong system of protection of privacy in lots of important areas of sensitive data. We talked about HIPAA and health data, your financial records are protected. And you've got the granddaddy of federal privacy laws, the Fair Credit Reporting Act that lets gives you access to your credit reports, the ability to correct those. And we cover a lot of other areas, communications, data, student records, genetic information. But the problem is that with this data explosion, more and more of the data collection out there isn't covered. By any of these laws. So most of the applications that we are dealing with, most of the online world is not covered by any of these sectoral areas. So an increasing amount of our activity is not specifically protected by any laws. There's still some enforcement by the Federal Trade Commission and by state attorneys general, but there are no laws that specifically govern that. And on top of that, as new applications develop and old industries and sectors get disrupted, those boundaries start to erode. I'm wearing an Apple Watch today. It's got health applications on it. You know, I can track my heart rate and stuff like that. If I share that with my doctor, it's protected. If I share that with a fitness app, it's not protected. That doesn't make any sense. It's the same data. It's just as sensitive to me, either way. It should be equally protected either way
0: And now here's Jenny Shutz with Metro Lens.
2: This is Jenny Schutz. I'm a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Housing costs are a critical issue for U.S. families. Having a safe, comfortable, affordable place to live is essential for everyone. The neighborhood where you live affects your access to jobs, the quality of your kid's school, even your health. Not to mention, paying the rent or mortgage is the largest item in most families' budget. In a recent study, I examined how housing affordability varies across different parts of the U.S. We usually assume that families can afford to buy a home that costs roughly three times their annual income. Using this benchmark, I examined where housing prices are either too high or too low for middle-income families. Not surprisingly, policymakers worry when housing prices are high relative to income. If families have to stretch to afford decent housing, They may cut back on other necessities, such as food or health care. High housing costs make it hard to save for a rainy day. Locations with expensive housing are particularly challenging for young workers who are just beginning their careers. Although less widely discussed, communities where housing prices are low relative to incomes can also be problematic. Housing is the largest financial asset for most Americans. Homeowners rely on accumulated housing wealth to help finance their children's education, or to supplement pensions in retirement. In communities where houses don't increase in value over time, families are less able to build wealth. Low housing values can also limit homeowners' ability to move to other locations in search of better economic opportunity. My analysis finds both good news and bad news on housing affordability. First, the good news. In the typical U.S. neighborhood, median housing prices are approximately three times median income, meeting our benchmark measure of affordability. A majority of Americans live in neighborhoods where home prices are affordable to middle-income families. Affordable neighborhoods are particularly widespread in the South and Midwest. However, in some parts of the U.S., housing prices are too low to support wealth building through homeownership. In 5% of neighborhoods, median prices are only 1.7 times median income. That's about half of what a typical family pays for a home. The largest share of unusually cheap neighborhoods are in small towns and rural areas. In communities like Pottsville, Pennsylvania and Odessa, Texas, nearly 40% of neighborhoods have unusually low price-to-income ratios. Low-priced neighborhoods are also common in some central cities, particularly older industrial cities around the Great Lakes. At the other end of the spectrum are communities where housing prices are out of reach for middle-income families. In the most expensive neighborhoods, median home prices are more than eight times median income, more than double what a typical family could afford to buy. These unaffordable neighborhoods tend to be concentrated in the urban core of large metropolitan areas, especially along the Northeast and Pacific coasts. For instance, in Santa Barbara, California, 40% of neighborhoods have unusually high price-to-income ratios. The spatial variation in housing affordability suggests several policy implications. First, public policies that encourage wealth building should not favor homeownership over other types of assets. Communities that have seen falling real housing prices are affordable places to buy a home, but challenging places to build wealth through homeownership. Federal tax policies strongly favor owner-occupied homes over other asset types. This puts middle-class families in low-priced areas at a serious disadvantage. Second, housing unaffordability for middle-income households is a regional rather than a national problem. In most communities, middle-income households can still afford to buy a home. Therefore, responsibility for policy solutions rests primarily with state and local governments. Third, local governments need to rethink their own policies that contribute to high housing costs. In the most expensive Northeast and West Coast communities, prices are high because zoning makes it difficult and expensive to build new housing. That is, the policy choices of local governments contribute to the problem. Making housing more affordable to middle-income families will require those governments to revise their zoning and build more homes, especially near jobs and transportation. Finally, this analysis focuses on housing affordability for middle-income families. We know from prior research that the poorest 20% of U.S. families face challenges in paying their rent regardless of where they live.
0: I've seen it argued by some that true privacy is dead. Do you agree or disagree with that?
1: Well, I disagree, Fred, but I think it's endangered. I think it is possible to have robust data use and also have privacy. But we need to set up the laws to do that. And we don't have that now. And I think if you want to look at sort of the world of the future, look at what's happening in China, where they are using a lot of the techniques of – Data analytics to create trust scores that get used for social control. They've got in parts of the country cameras everywhere that are tracking people in real time constantly. The capability is there. The analytics are there. The facial recognition is there. The ability to deploy all kinds of sensors very cheaply is there. And if we don't put a set of rules in place that governs how that data is used, then, you know, what we see in China is the future that we face. Well,
0: let's transition then to what those rules might look like. We've talked a lot about why protecting privacy is a losing game today. So now let's talk about the other part of your paper, how to change the game. But let me start Mm -hmm. by asking you whether or not you think this European model, the GDPR, I don't know what it stands for,
1: (laughs) General Data data Protection Regulation. Right.
0: Uh, Is that a model
1: for the United States or not? You know, in the end, no. I think there are a lot of good things about the GDPR. I've worked closely since I was in the government and dealing with the Europeans in their drafting process while we were working on policies here in the U.S. So I've seen it in the formation and I've seen it in the implementation. I also practice law and it helped advise clients and had lots of conversations with people about how they're implementing it. It's been a huge process. I think there's some very important things that the European Privacy Regulation does right. I think in particular, it puts individuals first. It's very centered on protecting individuals. And I think that's appropriate. I think it's, from my standpoint, too focused on sort of process and on sort of checking compliance boxes, and not enough on outcomes.
0: Let's pivot then to the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights, which you talk mm-hmm. about in the paper, and which you were involved with, if not leading, in the mm-hmm. uh, Obama White House. What is the Consumer Privacy sure, Bill of sure. Rights? Well,
1: I did the, lead the process of developing that, led the, the interagency task force that formulated it. And two things about the background of that First of all, I mean, it is the product of a process of wide consultation and thought with a number of groups, companies, civil society, privacy advocates, scholars, and a lot of thought went into all of that. And I think the principles that it articulated are principles that are deeply rooted in sort of the history of privacy laws. So we don't need to reinvent that wheel. This is an outgrowth of thinking over decades now. The basic principles are very similar to those of the European GDPR. So it's individual control, transparency, respect for the context in which data is shared, security, access and accuracy, like we get with fair credit reporting, accountability, and I'm doing a Rick Perry here. I'm leaving one of, the, one of them out. But what we did was to sort of reframe those to today's world. I think that furnishes a starting point for the discussion. But I think well, a key part of what we were trying to do was lay down some rules for privacy so that when you share data with somebody you have some basis for the trust that you put in that company so you have some expectation that there's a set of rules principles that a company's going to follow in handling your data but we wanted to do that in ways that you know are dynamic and flexible and you know, can be adapted as we go forward. So that how these principles apply to new technologies or individual applications or individual contexts is something that would be worked out as we go along. The way the common law has worked in the U.S. you know for hundreds of years. So we do things on a case-by-case basis rather than, as the Europeans do, try to set things hard and fast ahead of time.
0: One of the values that you espouse in the report is the golden rule of privacy. Can you explain what that is?
1: Sure. And that's something that was not part of the original Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. It's a product of thinking about this since that time, looking at the European model, conversations with a number of people, including a lot of conversations that are now going on in Washington today as – there's a new environment in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica stories, in the wake of the Europeans. I think there's a new receptivity and increased political will to talk seriously about privacy legislation in the States, and that's really why I wrote that paper. Those conversations, that sort of thought process, you know, we need we need a frame around these principles in the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. So you've got seven operational principles. But to guide this case-by-case interpretation, you need an overarching interpretive principle. That's where the golden rule of privacy comes in. And I call it a golden rule because it's really based on you know that golden rule of doing unto others uh, as you would have them do unto you. So that A company should put the interests of the consumer, the person that the data is about ahead of its own interests. That's basic principle of behavior. It ties into what I talked about, putting the individual first in the European regulation, ties into some of the origins of privacy law in the U.S.,
0: so looking ahead, how do you advance, how do we as a society advance these seven principles, this golden rule of privacy, in our regulatory structure, in our law, in our society? I mean, for example, what government agency is there to put sanction on a company that doesn't mm-hmm. respect the golden mm-hmm. rule of privacy?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, as I mentioned, Fred, there's a lot of, lot of discussions going on today about privacy legislation's response to a number of developments. But we saw a couple of months ago in the Mark Zuckerberg hearings on the Hill, a lot of senators and congressmen indicating that the time has probably come for some serious privacy legislation. And I think in contrast to when I was in the government and trying to move legislation forward, a much stronger sense of that, a bipartisan sense of that. So I think we will see legislation go forward. I I think what we need is comprehensive legislation, something that sets a baseline across the board. So we are filling those gaps that I talked about in our existing system and so that we have a baseline of expectations that everybody can have. And put the enforcement of that in the hands of the Federal Trade Commission. So the Federal Trade Commission is America's privacy agency today. It has, uh, for example, a consent decree already in force with Facebook that goes back to in 2010. It's done the same thing with other companies. It's got experience in privacy. It's got international respect as a privacy enforcement agency. And I think that's important as we deal with the rest of the world. On these issues. So it's got the competence. It needs the authority. So the idea of legislation behind the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights is to say that people have these rights. They should be interpreted in the light of the Golden Rule and enforced by the Federal Trade Commission. It's got existing authority under its Section 5 Unfair Practices and Acts. Say, violation of these principles is a violation of Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act. It can be a pretty simple bill.
0: Well, Cameron, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us today. And also, thanks for your continued work on this really important topic.
1: Well, thank you, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about it.
0: You can learn more about Cameron Carey and his report on protecting digital privacy on our website at brookings.edu. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahan for design and web support. Our interns are Sarah Miner and Leah Keali. Finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events, podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.